This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley with a bonus episode for you. Obviously, because it's Wednesday, we had PMQs unpacked. But today is also Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, where we're all urged to pause and remember the horror of the genocides carried out 70 years ago. And in the, the decades since, we're also urged to listen to the stories of those who were there. Well, thanks to the Holocaust Educational Trust, I've been lucky enough to speak to an extraordinary woman, Janine Weber, who was born in the Polish town of Lwów in 1932. And from the age of nine, when the Germans arrived, she spent the rest of her childhood on the run. So uh, if you can spare the time, please just listen to the whole thing. This is Janine's story. There were about over 150,000 Jews who lived in that part of Poland, Eastern Poland, Lwów. And most of them, unfortunately, perished, uh, either died of disease in the ghetto or shot or sent to concentration camps. And I am one of the very few blocky ones who managed to survive. Okay, Janine, your your story's so extraordinary. Let's just begin your story at the beginning. First, it was the Russians who arrived in 39. You know that Poland was divided into two parts. Then in 41, when I was just about nine, and uh, I lived with my parents and my brother two years younger, in, right in the center of the town. We lived on the second floor of a two-story building. Uh, we had a very modest flat. So when, in '41, when the Germans arrived, the Ukrainians started immediately persecuting the Jews and they killed 4,000 of them, even before the Germans started killing them. And then one day, they, after about a week or two, the Germans, the Nazis, decided to round up the men, Jewish men. And one day when I was with my mother and my brother, we were in our flat, I heard the Germans, the Nazis, the Gestapo screaming on our staircase. And my father came running in and he said, the Germans after me. And in order to escape and to hide, my father 
jumped from our second floor balcony onto the first floor balcony and hid. The Gestapo started banging at our door. My mother had to let them in. They didn't find my father and they left. After an hour or two, my father came back. He was still alive, but he had broken his leg. And for me, it was the first time I realized, first of all, that I never asked myself the question who I was. Uh, I just used to play in the streets with other children, as one did in those days. I realized that being Jewish was very frightening, very worrying. It's worth remembering at this point, Janine, you're just a young girl growing up in Poland who should have been out playing and going to school and doing all the normal things that, that a young girl in Poland in the 30s should have been doing? Nine. I was wow. uh, just nine. They came in June and my birthday was in July. And then we were told to leave our flat to take a minimum. We were given a small room in the house. They were getting ready the ghetto, but it wasn't ready yet. So meanwhile, they wanted to take over uh, the, the flats and houses of Jewish people. And we had to leave behind us. And your family told to just take one suitcase, putting a whole family's life in just one suitcase of essentials so so no room for for toys that, that children would normally want no room for that i remember my favorite toy i remember was a doll but there was no room for anything really we just had managed to take a few things it was late uh, summer and uh, uh, i remember taking my coat uh, we didn't have many things. No, we didn't. We're not allowed to take many things with us. And uh, and then we were we were in that small house. Uh, my parents dug a hole under the wardrobe, which was in our room. And when we heard the Gestapo coming, my mother my brother and i we hid in that hole under the wardrobe but there was no room for my father and my grandmother and they hid in the loft my cousin nina and her mother they hid in the wardrobe and her father and her brother who was about 11 or 12 he hid they hid in the loft the gestapo found them and they took them away. They didn't find us hiding in the hole under the wardrobe. And when it was quiet, we came out. And very soon I asked my mother, what happened to my father and my grandmother? And my mother said they were all shot. When we heard Gestapo, approaching and they, they were always shouting and screaming and calling the Jews by very unpleasant names. When we heard them at a distance, we this time we hid in a sort of shed like kennels, which was in the courtyard. And I remember sitting, holding on to my mother 
and I was so frightened. I was looking through the wooden slats and I was so frightened that I didn't look at the faces. I, draw, I, was, I remember just looking at the boots. And for many years, I used to have this nightmare that the boots were coming to get me. Fortunately, I don't have it now. And they didn't find us, and they left. But then the ghetto was ready, and the family was given just one small room for Janine, her mother and her brother. The conditions were atrocious. Uh, we didn't have money, we didn't have food. And my auntie, my mother's sister, who played a big part in my life, she managed to sell some clothes and the money she got, she bought some food for, the, for my mother. And uh, so my mother managed to get some food, but it, she gave it to my brother and to me. She just, I remember noticing, she would just eat peels of potatoes and everything else she gave to us. So Janine, there you are in the Jewish ghetto, in these awful conditions for several months. Just explain to us then what happened. My mother very soon became ill with typhus. A lot of people became ill and their people were dying and there were corpses lying on the pavement of children. And my mo and it was very dangerous to be ill in the ghetto because what they used to do every so often, they would gather the corpses and just throw them on a cart. And if they learned that there was somebody who was ill, they would pick them up and just throw them on top of the corpses. And that's actually what happened to my auntie, to my cousin's mother. She too became ill with typhus. And you know that typhus is a disease of poverty and lack of hygiene. It can be treated, but nobody had any money, any medication. So they took away my auntie, threw her on top of the corpses. She was still alive. And my cousin was there, she was about five by now. She saw it. So my mother, when she became ill, my uncle, her brother, carried her into the cellar of the building to hide her, to protect her. And uh, I went to see her. My mother, didn't look at me. She looked at a distance. She didn't speak to me. And I couldn't understand because my mother had always been very affectionate. I became so frightened and so upset by the whole situation that I ran out. And I saw my uncle and told him what had happened. And my uncle said, my mother had died. So I was left with my brother. So now, Sal, your father was shot, your mother has died. It's just you and your brother, both orphaned. You're 
just nine years old, your brother just six. One day my auntie said to me, get out of the ghetto. I noticed that somebody has dug a hole under the fence. So one morning my brother and I, we crawled through the hole and went into the area which was, uh, uh, there weren't any Jews, it was safe. We walked all day, but we didn't know where to go, who to talk to. So in the evening, we decided to go back to the ghetto. When we approached the hole, there was a group of Polish children and they said to us, give us your coats. If not, we will call the Germans. We gave them our coats and they let us crawl back into the ghetto. This is now winter 1941. Eventually Janine's uncle found a Catholic family willing to hide her and her brother in exchange for money. But this safe haven didn't last long. And one morning the daughter of the family, who was about 20, she came with a German soldier, with an armed soldier. I don't know, an SS, I'm not sure, but he, she brought him. And I knew that she brought him to kill my brother and to kill me. Because by then I knew they were killing all the children and all the Jewish people. Janine, obviously at this point you're a child just trying to get through each day and each situation. But how much do you know about what was going on about what we now know to be the Holocaust, about the, the treatment of Jews, about concentration camps and so on? When, it, when the Germans came and they were hounding uh, Jewish men and my mother told me that they were, they were taking the men into a camp but I didn't know what kind of a camp it yeah. was. So by then I didn't know uh, where they were being sent, but I knew that the Germans were killing all the Jews. I knew that. So this German soldier, the armed German soldier, possibly SS, turns up at the farm. What happens then? For some reason, which I cannot explain, Sherlock, he didn't want to kill me. And they killed my brother. Oh, I'm so sorry. With soft. the help of the family. And it's mainly the family, yes. And uh, they just told me to, walk, to go, to walk. And um, I started walking and eventually... I found one family. To, I knew I must never tell anyone that I was Jewish, and I found and uh, I found one family, and I invented a story. But after a few months, she, the lady, who was very kind to me, she said she found out I was Jewish, so I have to go. So she bought me a train ticket, and I went back to Lvov. I had with me the name and address of a young Polish Catholic man called Edek, or Edek, as you would call it in English. Edek was uh, the night watchman of a convent. My uncle gave me his address when I was in the ghetto, and he said to me, Edek will help you. He's a very good friend of ours. 
So I found him and indeed he took me into a place where uh, I went, uh, I found 13 Jews and we were hiding in a hole in a sort of bunker under the stables floor and uh, there were 14 of us. Edek was hiding 14 Jews. He is a hero. He was risking his life. He was 19. He was a young man. We were there in that hole. It, you know, it's very hot living on the ground. I never went out. I was just all the time either lying on the plank. We had six planks and chairs or sitting on the chair. There was very little food. My aunt, uh, who actually survived, she would go out at night, buy some food the following day, then come back the following night. And But how, there was so little food. And I remember just eating bread with raw onions. And I thought it was delicious. I stayed in that hole for a year. Wow, goodness. After, after a year, my auntie said, it's too difficult for a child to live in a hole. And she managed to get me some false papers. And one night, we left the hole. My aunt was blonde, so people didn't think she was Jewish. In Poland, people always thought that all the Jews were very dark. So my ma auntie convinced the woman in that office that I was, was a Catholic. I could hardly walk because I hadn't used my leg muscles for a year. I was very thin and I don't know how I must have looked, not having fresh air or daylight. But eventually the woman gave me a letter and I went to a convent. They kept me for the night, but the next morning they said, I most likely am too ill to stay with them because they didn't want other people to be infected. So they bought me a bus ticket and I went to Krakow. I found an orphanage, a, a convent, having looking after Polish children. But again, I wasn't very happy, not because they were not nice, but they were, they, you know, the Catholic nuns pray such a lot. I didn't know the Catholic prayers, so I was frightened that they might find out. I used to move my lips <laughs> to pretend. One day when the priest arrived, he said he could take four girls. He had a little cottage in the garden. I asked him if he would take me. And uh, indeed I would sit in the garden and walk around and little by little I recovered the use of my legs. Then a couple, an elderly couple came one day and they wanted a girl to help them in the house. I asked them if they would take me and I became a maid. I was 11 and a half by then. Of course, they didn't know I was Jewish, so they sent me to church. When I arrived in that village, I wrote to Edek to give him my address 
but nobody replied and I thought everybody was dead. I thought, in fact, all the Jews were dead. And uh, But six months after the war, my aunt came. She took me to Krakow, put me in a children's home for Jewish children who survived uh, where my, I'm like, with false papers or hiding, where I met my cousin Nina. Uh, but after the war in Poland, unfortunately, there was still a lot of anti-Semitism. And where we lived in Zakopane, a very well-known winter resort, people knowing that there were Jewish children in that home, they were throwing stones at us in other house. So people in charge decided to leave Poland. So we we went to Paris. Having reached Paris, Janine, you then went to school and then at the age of 24 came to England. And this story has a happy ending. You found love, met your husband, got married, had two children, now two grandchildren. But it's only in the last what, 10, 15 years that you, you've begun telling your story like this. Why is that? It's important to stand up to persecution not to let some people feel that they're superior to other people. Because after all, we are all humans. We are all the same. Now, somehow, I've got used to speaking and I feel I owe it to my parents, to my family, to all the Jews who have died, who were killed. And I, I must carry on speaking. And is that in part because you want to ensure that something like that, how awful it was, something like that can never happen again? Exactly. I'm just hoping that it will never happen again. Uh, however, I am worried about what's going on in the world at the moment and also about the rising of anti-Semitism. And uh, I'm very concerned about it. Very, very concerned about all the persecution that are going on in various countries. Now, Janine, I've got to ask you about this, the way you've been telling your story. Two years ago, you dipped your toe into hip-hop. Um, your story told by a rapper called Capu. Uh, are you normally a hip-hop fan? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, up till then, I didn't even know what it was. Um, I have since then, I've started being more interested in uh, rap music, you know, and hip hop music. Yes. And I listen to it occasionally to, to get to know a little more. But no, <laughs> unfortunately, I love music, but um, I didn't know very much about it. No, but he was... He is such a sweet, such a lovely young man. 1932, born a Jew. Doesn't mean much to the likes of me and you. Oh, Janine, Janine, where have you been? What have you seen? A child on the run from a killer machine. That was Capu and a track called Edic using Janine's words to tell her story to a, to a new generation. Uh, finally, Janine, I just wanted to end on something nicer, really. Um, so we focus on uh, nicer memories, if you like. Can you remember your 
your family, your parents, your brother, your life before the Holocaust, before the war, before before the Germans came in their boots? Of course, I think a lot about it. And I remember <laughs> one lovely memory, my my, uh, my dream as a, a small child was always to have a pram for my doll. And I didn't manage to have it. And I remember my father, oh, I must have been, I don't know, maybe four or five. He would, because the winters in Eastern Poland are so bad, he would warm the eider down against the we had a big in poland everybody had this big chimney he would warm up the, the eider down and wrap me in it and carry me to bed oh you know I, so I remember and i've got other very nice memories of uh, going on holiday you know with my parents my family uncles and aunts yes well, that was Janine Webb. What, a, what an incredible woman. And tonight at eight o'clock, we're being urged to light a candle in our windows to remember those who were murdered for who they were and to stand against prejudice and hatred today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Thank you for listening to the Red Box Podcast. We'll have another episode back for you tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.